Um, yeah, so how is, I mean, congratulations for the book, uh, Transgender Marxism is really impressive. And yeah, how, how's been the reception? Oh, thanks. Uh, so far, the reception has been really, uh, really positive, really interesting. I would say that the one unfortunate thing is obviously we've not been able to do any live touring, which was the original plan. Um, our original plan was kind of to start here in Vienna and then maybe go through central, <laughs> central Eastern Europe a bit, wherever we could cause some trouble. But, um, but obviously that hasn't happened. So yeah, we've just been doing like a procession of web events, much like this one, um, to try and try and get stuff out there. So yeah, mostly the feedback has kind of been off social media, emails from people and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, various people have told us that they're teaching it in classes and things like that. And um, and yeah, the reception's been really good. I guess we're still kind of awaiting like any meaty reviews. Like there hasn't been a lot of that. There have been like some blog reviews and things like that. But um, that's still the kind of thing which is still still in the works. I know of um, I know of at least three that are going to be very interesting in. Uh, Jacobin, Spectre, and one other place, I'm not sure, that's being done um, by someone who I'm pretty sure is going to come up with something impressive. So yeah, if anyone wants to review the book, <laughs> get in touch, we can give you a copy. Oh uh, yeah, a good call. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh. And have you been surprised by any reactions? So, so far, have they been like inside what you expected or, you know? Oh, well... There were a few hostile reactions, I suppose. These are mostly from people who are quite dedicated to <laughs> anti-trans rhetoric and thinking. Mm. So I think there were like two or three of those. I didn't pay such close attention to them. There was one in the Morning Star, I know, this like British, <laughs> this British like former, it used to be like a tabloid newspaper and now it's just kind of like this eccentric fringe publication. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I guess like, I guess, like, there weren't so many, I suppose, like, in terms of surprises, I guess, like, I was kind of, I was quite pleased by how many, like, social theorists I knew and had read and enjoyed the work of were kind of reaching out or tagging themselves in selfies <laughs> in some cases. Uh, mm -hmm. I got an email from Kathy Weeks just the other day. Um, she was getting in touch with myself and with Elle um, to talk about the experience of teaching it. Um, and I've heard, uh, yeah, I guess I've heard from quite a few people about, like, teaching this in a university context, like, um, the kind of feedback they get from that. So that's been, like, the overall, the kind of most positive thing, like, hearing how this has been kind of integrated into people's teaching and, I'm sure, into their thinking as well. Yeah, because, um, I, I mean, I guess the first time I heard about your work or I read you was the piece on gender abolitionism which you know you bring the whole communication theory uh, into dialogue and uh, and uh, yeah so I was very interested in kind of knowing how you came across this you know kind of uh, scene which was quite specific in the early 2010s I guess it became quite you know some people became interested mm -hmm. Uh, perhaps because of the book, uh, Communicationalist Discontents, or maybe the journals by N Notes, because otherwise, I guess, yeah, it was more like a French kind of current. But uh, yeah, maybe if you can talk about the connection between those origins and then when the, suddenly the issue of gender became a very prominent discussion within this, uh, this, within, 
you know, these scenes. Mm. I'm sorry, you kind of cut out for a second. That could be maybe. Uh, sorry. So yeah, like uh, I, I would be interested in hearing how you found out about these currents, and then you know if maybe you talk about the way you know like. Uh, Maybe your response to that kind of uh, scene with the whole gender abolitionist uh, and the piece that you wrote. Well, I guess I kind of, <laughs> I guess I've been like a communist since I was a small child. I guess I kind of always, <laughs> I've like very precociously held some kind of anti-capitalist perspective or another from like a young age. So that's like my own personal history. Um, <laughs> I don't really. I don't know why this was, it wasn't like I was actually raised by Marxists or anything like that. But um but yeah, I guess I've just always like always been developing these perspectives and always <laughs> been interested in, in these kind of viewpoints. Um from like uh whatever. So I guess like to me a lot of this stuff just feels um I don't know, it just feels intuitive, it just feels like something which um I've always been minded to do. But uh, I guess there's more interesting questions there about like the what, <laughs> why it is that this has been like saying that so many people have kind of ended up winning um, in a similar way. Uh, I think one of the the chapters in the book actually by Farrah Thompson is called the bridge between gender and organizing, which is like <laughs> I guess that's kind of one of the main concerns that a lot of the chapters in the book, including. Nat Rahas and Michelle O'Brien, for example, are kind of like uh, trying to <laughs> trying to address in their own way. Like, why why is it that so many communist organizers or communist thinkers, at least, are um, are kind of like yeah? Why is it that like so many of us kind of um, <laughs> yeah? Why is it that so many of us have these overlapping concerns with um, yeah, living in uh, like subordinated gender positions? Anyway, I'm, I'm not really sure that answers your question, but I guess that's just some stuff on my mind. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I, I guess, um, I, I, what I was uh, very interested is in this um, connection that you were able to bridge um, these different scenes, you know, like, um, so from uh, the critique to communication to them, the critique to xenofeminism feminism and um, and I guess from a, a rigorous uh, Marxist perspective, um, which uh, I found totally uh, exciting and and yeah, so I I guess I'm very impressed by the openness or like trying to really by by your openness and trying to articulate you know critiques to these different discourses yeah it could be great if uh, you could talk because i guess not just us but as well our potential audience uh, would be delighted to hear about your critique of xenofeminism that we think is so relevant in a moment like today uh yeah yeah let me just um let me just, I suppose one one more thing I wanted to say about the collection before I get into the xenofeminism stuff is, um, uh, I think with the collection, uh, yeah, it's, like, clearly it is, it's achieved a bunch in kind of, um, 
bringing these connections which were already there as you say like across these scenes all these merged scenes um yeah well that's kind of what it was doing but also i feel like this was something which was underway for a long time previously and this is seeing the introduction is trying to kind of flag up that there was already this uh convergence of thought which um myself and al and i think everyone involved in the collection we already kind of found ourselves in the midst of this merger but a great amount of it was happening um like <laughs> i guess on the sort of semi-private parts of the internet is how i would put it like on the parts of the web where like you know you have to be friends with someone or you have to have like fallen down the rabbit hole <laughs> of uh you know certain low twitter low follower twitter accounts or instagram stories or uh messages in bottles or whatever else that um yeah you kind of had to sort of have plunged into these esoteric networks to really get it so i suppose one aspect, yeah. aspect of the book is trying to bring that out to like the more exoteric side so this kind of brings us to the xenofeminism thing i think quite easily because uh xenofeminism similarly is is one of these um is one of these uh intellectual tendencies with shall we say uh mixed associations uh which is also true of accelerationism more generally right like simultaneously uh <laughs> simultaneously accelerationism is kind of like um associated with like uh crypto fascism hyper racism and all these other kind of like uh, reactionary kind of associations but um like obviously is is, is like <laughs> like the thinkers associated with it uh prone to being uh whatever any any stigmatized position you care to mention at the same time so that's one of the things which i found so interesting about it and when i was preparing my own critique um I guess this was 2019 now, right? This is like a few years ago. This was kind of the striking thing that simultaneously uh, you had this uh, contamination, <laughs> which the Xenofeminist Manifesto was so playful with, this contamination of the uh, associations with the esoteric right, right? Um, you had simultaneously that, but also this piece of writing which was unabashedly and very, uh, <laughs> I want to use the word fertile, uh, and it's like pro-trans, um in its pro-trans thinking which was exactly not um exactly not kind of taking this approach to trans people where it's like okay well we're going to do this gender liberation and we're going to like add trans people into that but actually beginning from um the other side right saying like well there is this uh <laughs> you know there is this thing called the natural which we're trying to overcome and like uh you know everyone's participating in that to a greater or well in, in their own way right and um that was actually what I found the most, that was kind of what made the Xenofeminist, uh, well, the original Gloria Connects and, and then the um, uh, Helen Hester's book as well and a few other things which I get into in this piece. Um, that was what made it worthwhile. It was exactly this kind of mismatch between this, uh, yeah, between this orientation and what had kind of like swamped uh, British feminism or maybe kind of Anglo-feminism more generally uh in the in the intervening years right so um so yeah you could say that like the xenofeminism and, and transgender marxism are kind of coming at the same thing where it's like simultaneously uh <laughs> simultaneously these are these are like the parts of the left which have a reflexive hostility towards uh identitarianism if we can call it that yet nevertheless have attracted <laughs> more than their fair share of all these gender deviants uh uh 
you know, social dropout recluses, whatever else. These are the kind of people who will often like plunge deep into these these schools of thought. So um, anyway, that's a kind of like a preamble. So I'm very interested to hear what you made of the piece because <laughs> I kind of I often forget about this critique. So I'm I'm delighted to make it. <laughs> Um, no, for me it was very important to kind of um, address the issue of alienation because the, their perspective was quite ahistorical and, uh, and then you really uh, addressed the kind of Marxist specificity and its historical connotations. So that was, uh, I guess I'm very interested in the concept of alienation and I, I find uh, your usage uh, very uh, very accurate so yeah I, I guess yeah if you could maybe talk a bit about the role of alienation in your critique um, I think that would be yeah, really helpful um, well I I suppose I have two, uh, two things to say about this um, the first is that I guess with the concept of alienation I felt like this was the most um, <laughs> this was the most challenging part of the piece because it almost felt, as you say, like I'm coming from a history of thought kind of view on it. I'm taking that approach with uh, with the tongue. I suppose <laughs> I suppose what I'm trying to do is, is in a sense quite pragmatic. So I'm trying to like say, well, this is a term which has clearly been used in different ways, and what kind of translation can we do across these these different terms and what are the different <laughs> what are the different meanings and I suppose also which which understanding of this term do I want people to side with and ultimately I I think the Marxist one is much more useful even for kind of pursuing the concerns uh, the stated concerns of the xenofeminists right so um <laughs> so I was trying to do that but I also realized along the way that this sort of puts me in the position of the <laughs> the kind of you know the killjoy or the scold or whatever you want <laughs> kind of saying well you should have your cod liver oil and you should take your history of thought and you should read your Hegel. And um, I kind of realized that this was not like a very fun thing to do. So sort of in the piece, there's a few sort of like buried jokes often in like footnotes or things like that to try and kind of liven things up. And <laughs> I feel like a few of the, a few of the original Zeno feminists kind of got savvy to what I was doing and were quite friendly with me anyway. And were kind of into that. The initial wave of kind of reaction was very scathing and caustic, shall we say, which was roughly kind of what I anticipated. Um, <laughs> I think I had like had a typo about uh, what is it, whatever it's one of the varieties of accelerationism, which was roundly <laughs> and justifiably mocked. Um, but uh, but yeah, basically, I suppose like as I say, like like um, the term alienation, kind of like I get the provocation and I get the the meaning they were trying to deploy with it. It just like to me it didn't really it didn't really satisfy my sense that this was the best way to sort of approach um the natural and specifically like i kind of feel <laughs> i feel like well there's a few points where what i felt like they were trying to it felt like they were trying to get rid of a lot of stuff and replace it with kind of unclear content so that was sort of what um i wasn't so happy with that but, um, but yeah, it was an interesting challenge in this piece to try and sort of exactly that uh, I felt like any response which, <laughs> any response to a document like their manifesto kind of required this sort of playfulness and this kind of um, joyful aspect, right? Because without that, it would be sort of lacking 
any imminence. So that's why, like, one section of the piece is sort of, like, quite satirical, the bit about, like, the Richard Dawkins thing, where I'm trying to, like, scour into them and perform some kind of exposing paranoid reading <laughs> on that, like, corrupted uh, rationalism. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this kind of, um, <laughs> basically, like, um, insofar as I had a serious point, it's that, like, rationalism is something worth, um, like, returning to and something worth uh, repurposing. But, like, uh, that requires a kind of discernment and that requires kind of taking it seriously. And, um, yeah, the kind of irony of this is the people who are originally getting me into the people I'm kind of drawing from here, the people who, um, the, like, Pittsburgh Hegelians, um, <laughs> were, like, uh, which is, like, uh, yeah, Wilfred Sellers, Robert Brandam, and, uh, wait, John McDowell as well, yeah. Um, the person who sort of got me into the three of them originally was Ray Brazier. I watched this very convoluted uh, YouTube video of his on materialism, and that was what sort of, like, sparked off my interest in sort of drawing from some contemporary analytic philosophy back in, I guess, 2012, 2013. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of, like, that's kind of, like, one of the things I was trying to bring to bear, and when I'm talking about, like, translation, that's very much, like, the terminology of Robert Brandon, like, um, like, like trying to make sense of the, the kind of imminent meaning that buying schools of thought, um, bring to bear when they're kind of deploying specific terms. I think that's always what, like, I'm interested in when we run into semantic problems, like what, what exactly alienation consists of and how we should be using that term. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, well, yeah, it's, I guess we all, uh, Miguel and I, uh, are very, very close to Ray, so... I mean, it's it's great the the critique that you also make in the piece uh, that obviously uh, gender is not something that he has ever dealt with, as far as I know. And I think his he has changed uh, mm -hmm. his notion on rationalism. You know, I guess taking into account you know mm -hmm. Marxism and uh, psychoanalysis. So you know, I think it's a a very uh, yeah. I, I guess I'm very close to to him, but in, the, in this uh, kind of Marxist kind of understanding of the problematics of taking for granted the possibility of rational capacity under these conditions and rationalize under these con under these conditions, which I think um, I, I, I think it doesn't take into account the way that we are conditioned by the value form and the this uh, set of relations and I think in your uh, talk in Zagreb how do bodies work why do they fail I think you point at the very specific forms of mediation that uh, both our bodies but also our capacity uh, to rationalize go through and uh, you bring this term uh, galert which Kitten Sutherland uses uh, and it's a term that got translated uh, got, got missed in the translation um, so I was wondering whether maybe this talk was um, a kind of uh, deepening of the critique or can be seen as a deepening of some of the issues that you dealt in, in the critique of xenofeminism? Yeah, so I quite, <laughs> I quite enjoy thinking about this essay. So this essay is in the book. Um, uh, oh wait, sorry. So we're talking about um, how, how do our bodies work and why do they fail us, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this this session in Zagreb 
Um, right. So, so I suppose a lot of, um, a lot of the walk I've been doing has kind of been in these, uh, in these, like, in these twos, in these, like, distinctions, um, which, uh, that talk does, and also this essay in the book, um, How Do Gender Transitions Happen? Uh, it kind of takes the same thing, like, it divides between the encounters in the communities, um, uh, in the same way I was, like, dividing between, like, how our bodies usually function and, and how they fall short of our, <laughs> our ends and our hopes for them. And, um, and this, like, uh, this process of division is very much to do with the kind of rationalism I invested in. And, um, if people want to know what I'm talking about here, there's, I guess, two easy entry points. And one is this, um, one is this talk by Robert Brandom about the hermeneutics of suspicion and why, um, uh, he doesn't find hermeneutics very convincing. And, um, and the other one is a, a piece by Ray Brazier. I think it's one of his various critiques of Nick Lang. And, um, the title is escaping me, but anyway, Brazier has this reading of Brandon, which is very much about the philosopher versus the critic, <laughs> and like the loose way that this works is that philosophers kind of draw distinctions between things and then critics try and collapse them. And this is like a continual interplay, so like, um, <laughs> and uh, and it's kind of an interplay that's been going on um, for a long while, and um, I suppose it's most obviously evident in Kant, who's continuously um, <laughs> continuously splitting things up and categorizing them and so on uh, in ways people find um, either cogent or horrifying <laughs> or some combination of those two things. And um, and I guess that this, the, in, the influence that this kind of had on me was very um, profound, but also I don't really, it's not like I purposefully set out to draw like commanding distinctions um, for the sake of it. It's just they kind of occur to me, you know what I mean? Like. You, you try and consider through an issue and you think, how am I going to set this up and how am I going to illuminate it? And then that's, um, and that's, uh, that's kind of what happens. But, um, but during this talk I gave in Zagreb, during this, this uh, one about embodiment, um, yeah, this talk about, uh, yeah, how, how do our bodies work and, and why do they care? <coughs> Just like, uh, what, I, what I discovered in the process of this talk is um, the further I was going into the actual philosophy of embodiment, like philosophers talking about their bodies, the more these like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess even as I was trying to philosophize it, all these like distinctions kind of kept on collapsing, right? Because um, somehow uh, somehow philosophers aren't really able to, to get to grips with what their bodies are capable of and how they work until they start looking at these moments, these like breaking points, right? So that's why in this talk I talk about Gillian Rose, who I'm happy to chat about a bit more. And she talks about um, uh, the renewal of her colon and uh, yeah, her experiences with cancer. This is mostly in love's work um, in ways which like, um, yeah, so in ways which are like hard to place along the schema I was just describing, even though um, she, much like Robert Brandon, is sort of one of these rearguard defenders of, of rationalism. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I really love the the ending. Um, I guess you don't say it in these words, but uh, the way I got it is like freaks of the world unite. Like uh, that now is the time for freaks, and that is yeah, that is you know that yeah. so you know there should be a maximum expression of freaky freaks and freakism. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know if now yeah. it's decided. Yeah, please go. Please go ahead. Well, I I actually feel like uh, uh, Julian Rose's defense of, of like rationalism. <laughs> for some of our listeners, maybe you're familiar with these debates. Maybe for some of you, you're not. I don't know. But I feel like her. She has this chapter in one of the comes the Lord. She begins with this uh, this section on reason. Uh, she begins talking about reason, and she's like, well. Uh, if you were friends with someone, like really close friends, and you thought you could rely on them and trust them, and then they breached this trust, you know, they betrayed you and left you uh, reading, you know, <laughs> it may be a response to say like, uh, you know, I can never trust this person again, we can't be friends any longer. Um, but like, would it still be a fair response if you said, well, I, I cannot form friendships, like, um, I can't have friends anymore after this betrayal. And um, and the answer to that one has to be, well, sometimes it is. Sometimes people get into a melancholic state where they're incapable of, um, uh, yeah, they're incapable of forming friendships again. But those are the stakes, I think, when it comes to rationalism and, and reason and so on. It's that the, um, the uh, you know, after all critiques have concluded, after the negativity has done its work <laughs> as it must, we then have to kind of ask ourselves, well, what now and what's the next stage? Like, this friendship has ended. Uh, this this person or this nation or this school of thought can no longer be trusted, but then there's still work to be done once that's, that's concluded itself, right? So, yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's, that's the kind of, <laughs> that's the moment that gets me into to calling myself a rationalist. I find uh, interesting this because it reminds me uh, your very interesting text for New Socialist, the infamous proposal, uh, and your critique of the family unit, and um, yeah, the way in which you you present this as a tool of, um, if I remember correctly, transphobes to decrease the number of out trans people, no, and how the family could be replaced with unchecked queer bonds. So we were talking, you were talking now about different interpersonal bonds, no, like friendship. But your critique of the, yeah, this idea of the family unit that we reproduce somehow or some of us, or we see the reproduction of this uh, very ancient uh, notion of organization from people that maybe they they promote politics that are uh, being considered uh, I don't know contemporary or, or radical to some extent etc so I think it would be fantastic if you could explain first of all what's your critique in broad terms and then what you are proposing when you talk about this uh, let me find the Yeah, these unchecked uh, queer bonds. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing with my writing on the family, uh, the thing about it is that I feel like a lot of the time, the politics of family abolition, which I have argued for, are very easily misconstrued. And, and um, I guess this is why I've sort of lost interest in the arguments of late. But um, but the issue with um, the issue with the family and, and here's what my writing back to Kinder Communism, which I wrote with Kate Doyle Griffiths. Um, 
I guess what I've always been trying to get at is exactly how uh, queer kinship and um, uh, sex, family relations and houses and whatever uh, other other frameworks exist, how these things are like these things pr proliferate for a good reason, and they um, uh, are enormously like creative aspects. You know, like queer alternative families, let's say. Um, all of these like uh, structures and conventions and scenes and networks are like um, are wonderful things, but also there's this um, insufficiency. There's this kind of like falling short, which always exists, uh, always exists in the context of capitalism. And this is something which people like I think know about, but it's like it's thing which kind of requires statement. And that's sort of like that's actually the reason that um that I guess. <laughs> like that's the reason we came up with, um, yeah, reviving family abolition. This this book from the Communist Manifesto, um, and that's why myself and Kate really had to emphasize this stuff. It's not um, it's not only because we uh, loathe heterosexuality and uh, <laughs> and all of the harm which it does to us across generations. Although surely we do. It's exactly because like that doesn't seem to be. Um, that basically doesn't seem to be an exit point in what other theorists would talk about in terms of like world-making activities. You know what I mean? It doesn't actually seem like these world-making activities actually ever generate a world. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. Um, it doesn't get us out of the existing prevailing mode of production, right? And the demands that that places on us. I actually have a section of the book I could read out, but I don't want to. No, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's brilliant. Okay. Well, this was the sex, this is the end of this um, essay which I've already mentioned called "How Do Gender Transitions Happen?" And um, yeah, in this essay, as I say, it distinguishes between like encounters and communities and the different kinds of ways that those shape um, transitions. But then I reached the end of it uh, <laughs> while we were preparing to publish this. I reached the end of it and I asked Al like, maybe we need some more like crunchy end to it because the risk is that people read this and they go, uh, "Okay, so communities—that's what we've got to do." <laughs> and um, and that's quite a dangerous conclusion <laughs> for a communist because uh, because I'm not a communitarian. So um, so yeah. So uh, let me just read you the section. Okay. Um, but can either of these views of transition, the individual wriggling free in the face of interpolation, or community working up their own normative bedrock, ever be fully accepted for our purposes? While they have been my primary interest, my intention here has not been to lord the workings of communities. Organization between ourselves as peers has achieved breakthrough after breakthrough in pre-political labors required for forming and sustaining ourselves. But keeping one another alive cannot be collapsed with revolutionary change. We have made the best of our proletarianized existence, but we have yet to escape it. For as long as trans people operate in the face of a capitalist state, we will break in two directions atomized struggle and the fashioning of a trans-specific mode of civil society, quote-unquote. Trans people oscillate not only out of that atomized state, but often are back into it. Many of our worst traumas are inflicted by other trans people. Many drop out of activism with an embittered set of square quotes placed around the world's trans community. Every petty corruption, frustration, and normativity enforcing eccentricity finds itself empowered by the raw necessity of communal work to avoid trans life becoming heteronymous with the whims and outdated protocols of state provision. In other words, to exist on our own terms immediately follows through into ferocious rows about exactly who we are. 
The result is that trans communities are despised and relied upon by trans people in equal measure, and for the exact same reasons. These ever-imperfect and ad-hoc circles of shared interests are the best and the worst stock gap against the total immigration provided by the existing capitalist division of labor. So that is, um, that's, that's like my communist take on communities for you. Like, the reason we talk about them is the reason we can't stand them. And, uh, yeah, can't live with them, can't live without them. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I find extremely appealing this, uh, yeah, like this ferocious uh, roles about exactly who we are, and yeah, I guess there is such a tendency to, you know, I guess there is, you know, on the one hand, there is uh, we have identity politics that perhaps try to define certain idea of what, you know, uh, what, what people are, or, you know, or, you know, they, they, like, there seems to be like, we, we are in a moment in time that things are going so much in such a disastrous way that people try to retain whatever form of uh, security or kind of, uh, have a sense of themselves the people are trying to make sense of themselves but uh, what I find very attractive is that you know you you're saying that you're already in a kind of grinder of questioning what this is you know so it's, uh, and, and I think this makes it a much more um, realistic uh, approach to you know how, how can we make a sense of who we are in in this society, and uh, and to try to defend a specific given constructed identity might be um, problematic or might generate kind of problems. Um, yeah. Well, I guess um, <laughs> I guess just to contextualize this a little bit, I guess within Marxist theory, um, the people I become <laughs> the people I go into dialogue at least with most easily are people sort of from the I guess like the viewpoint crowd the like viewpoint um magazine tendency within the Occupy movement um I feel like uh yeah the constellation of thinkers there I suppose primarily Asad Hyder although there's a lot of uh, other people I could mention um I think they've done a pretty good job of flagging out this like like how can we identify <laughs> how can we identify identities as like this, this uh, unreliable basis for the political without um, making some kind of reactionary ghastly move in the manner of um, Jacobin or whoever else. Um, and like how can we how can we get to grips with, with the problems within relying on identities without without um, <laughs> breaking to the right, I guess. And um, well that's that, but also I would also I would say that the I think the mention is that this is again this is something which has been sort of uh, yeah, this is something which has been written about extensively um, by trans thinkers, not necessarily Marxists. Like, um, Paul Patin had this essay called Pop Allostatic Load, which kind of focuses on the internet specifically and, and the way that communities um, become sort of torturous experiences there. Just yesterday, I was um, uh, I was uh, attending a talk by um, Nat Laha and uh, Richie, and uh, they were chatting about. Uh, 
uh, yeah, chatting about exactly this question and kind of the, the way that communities, um, they were using the terms like friction and complicity. So they have a, a, an essay out soon about this topic. And, um, and uh, wait, one second. Um, and uh, the, the pair of them had some illuminating things to talk about it. So yeah, I'm by no means the only person um, <laughs> working with this stuff. So yeah, definitely check out Nat Lahar and Mitchell Vanderdrift. Um, uh, if you're interested in more of it, but um, yeah. but I think like for for our purposes, like um, I guess the important thing is to to try and like yeah try and identify why these uh why are these like uh clusters of sociality so dominating and important, but also like um not to kind of satisfy ourselves with that, uh, <laughs> which um yeah I guess to like. <laughs> To try and work out how this how society is constituted without justifying it, right? Um, and uh, that's yeah, that's the only reason like I've, I've ever had an interest in like the term like abolition. Like that's what it's supposed to imply to me is this um, yeah, does this mean that I guess is, at this point is drawn from black feminism as much as anywhere else about um, abolition means that you don't just like uh, storm the Bastille and dismantle parliament and uh, uh, tell the police that they're going to have to find something else to do with their time. Um, <laughs> it actually means, have, it means, it means like actually doing something which is going to close these wounds and like uh, undo these injuries. And um, that's what, uh, that's what we got to do. Yeah, I, I guess, I, yeah, I find very interesting that, you know, there's been like several discussions on, on different forms of abolition, uh, you know, from the self-abolition of the proletariat, uh, on gender, you have written about it. Uh, so there is, like, a, I guess, um, um, I guess my question has to do with the totality, the relationship between different forms of abolition, but then we are determined also by a capitalist totality. And I guess, you know, how would you do a certain form of abolition will it need to be like a total form of abolition of you know because i guess these different forms of abolition like gender or, or race you know or like the identity of the proletarian are constituted you know like the, to a certain extent or fully through the capitalist relations mm -hmm. so how do you think this notion of abolition in relationship to the totality of yeah of, of, of a certain capitalist uh, form of totality Oh, that's a good question. I should probably think some more about the totality, I suppose. Uh, I, I, I have? Uh, hmm? uh, yeah, just, uh, well, uh, just because uh, I, I give you just a bit of the context. As with mm -hmm. Anthony, we are editing a book on the concept of real subsumption, and we had the title, What is to be done on the real subsumption, but it maybe it was a bit too geeky, you know, like people who... So now we're thinking of changes into abolishing capitalist totality. So oh, wow. you know, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of, that's why, and the notion of abolition comes uh, in the book quite often in different, you know, from different perspectives. So that just yeah. has the kind of context. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> well, abolition's a funny thing. Uh, <laughs> Well, definitely, uh, the stuff about family abolition has been by far, <laughs> by far the material I've written which has gotten uh, a certain type of conservative and a certain type of 
feminist and a certain type of socialist. Uh, very riled up and, uh, uh, you know, resistant, shall we say, <laughs> casting insinuations, in some cases, uh, raking over my personal appearance. Uh, yeah, this is the, the thing that really gets them riled up. I also wrote a pair of essays about gender abolition. I guess this was back in 2017 for Blindfield. Um, I was very interested in the history of this poem. Mm, and this this pair of pieces sort of, it didn't exactly sync without a trace, but no one seemed to be so fussed about it. Uh, gender abolition is not really a position I endorse or I'm very interested in, but um, it did interest me that like a large amount of this material um, shifted from being written by lesbians and gay men uh, to being written by trans kids in the early 2010s, um, maybe the end of 2000. Um, but uh, as I continued writing the piece, I sort of began to wonder how much of a shift this was exactly because um, the gender abolitionists of the new left were figures like uh, Monique Petit and uh, Monique Petit and Mario Vialli. And, um, and Vialli and Petit had this uh, aspect where they uh, really destabilized um, rather than reaffirming their, their like, uh, sex positions. and. Um, uh, that's something which I'm going to work with more about in the future. But, um, but in a way, they have this kind of, uh, yeah, they have this um, uh, transsexual or hermaphroditic aspect in, uh, in their theory and their fiction. So, um, so, yeah, so this notion of like gender abolition, I was just really fascinated that gender, um, gender abolition kind of like became submerged somewhere along the lines. I guess it was somewhere in the mid-2010s. Like, it became that the only people who would talk about it were actually these, uh, uh, let's say, sex foundationalist feminists, so kind of anti-trans thinkers who would use this term a lot. And I just found it very curious that <laughs> at this point, gender abolition was a, uh, was a shibboleth for um, uh, people with antagonistic views towards trans people, whereas previously, um, previously, in fact, <laughs> maybe like five or seven years previously, the only people using this term had been um had been transgender theorists. So yeah, this is the purpose of the blind kill piece. And again, it's like I feel like I can kind of like investigate that as a historical question and find it interesting without finding it useful to say like, oh, we should abolish gender now. Um <laughs> and I don't know, I guess that this is always kind of what uh I feel like anytime someone's saying saying like we should abolish something in a way that I care about, um, they're trying to come to terms with the uh, yeah, with the injuries and the wounds that are being done, and um, they're trying to make sense of the passage of time, which is um, which is like the way that uh, uh, yeah, the way that a boy will be brutalized to become a man, um, or a girl will be brutalized to become a woman, and how um, we can sort of see that coming. You know what I mean? One generation after the next, this is something which can be anticipated um, quite reliably, almost. So, um, so that's something which the new left challenged, and that's something which, in their own way, these uh, web manifestos of the early 2010s tried to challenge. And um, and yeah, those are traditions which I think, um, if they shouldn't be revived and they shouldn't be like uh, reenacted, they should at least be like respected, and we should always like um, <laughs> pay attention to the thoughts of the dead, you know. So I'm a big fan of stereotypes. <laughs> That was a bit nervous, wasn't it? <laughs> there was some nervous laughter in that crowd. Like, it's quite, it's quite a curious position, like being pro-stereotype as a political...
as a politically correct comedian, like that's quite an unusual stance. But I think that stereotypes are kind of like hip dips. They're just kind of there. They're probably not going to go away. And like you definitely shouldn't let them stop you getting naked and doing what you want to do. Like <laughs> I think stereotypes, like they have this kind of beautiful aspect. And what's more, like they're not as threatening as they once were. I think a lot of us probably grew up with heterosexual stereotypes being like a big feature of our lives. But now, like, now for queers, there are just too many letters for people to keep track of. Like LGBTQIA, right? That's, that's like too many letters for your average heterosexual to really compute. So they get lazy. They just kind of double up and use like the same set of stereotypes for <laughs> all these different things. But like, I think I'm going to try and cover them all this evening. I'm going to try and cover every letter, except the A, because A is like ambiguous. A is kind of... <laughs> A is the source of many arguments. I don't know if anyone's got a strong opinion on this one, but some people think that A should be asexuals. Asexuals. No one wanted to laugh at that, it's great. And some people think that it should be allies. That's another contender, so asexuals and allies. But like, I don't really care. I don't like it when people put in both. So some people say LGBTQIAA, so like LGBTQIA, ah! Like that's, <laughs> I think that's like, that's a short-term thinking solution, because like, <laughs> So I think, I think like we can, we can do an arm wrestling. Like if you've got one asexual, one ally, you can like battle for it. No? Okay. <laughs> I guess I'll start with the less controversial letters then. All right, so LGBTQI. Um, lesbians, right. So the main association with lesbians uh, is just that you never see them. Like you never see lesbians. They're never out on the scene. They're like kind of AWOL um, or in hiding. And it's kind of like a source of anxiety. It's like, what, what if we held a party and no lesbians came? That's like the fear for any queer. <laughs> and where are they? Are there like, are there like secret sapphic house parties which we're not invited to? Like, <laughs> probably. <laughs> it's, it's like a mysterious feature, but it was solved in 2018. They had this one bit of social science research. So I'm not just sprouting bigotry. This was the research which showed in 2018 that that, um, that there's this thing called the orgasm gap, right? And they showed this scientifically. Everyone knew about it, but now it's science. 52,000 people, they interviewed 52,000 people about how often you orgasm, and they interviewed all genders, all sexualities, and the discoveries were unsurprising. <laughs> unsurprising. Men, it doesn't really matter who men have sex with. Like, men kind of come no matter what gender, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> For real, straight men, it's 94, uh, gay men are at 89, and bisexual men are at like 88, so it's very like close cluster. So for gays, it's kind of like indeterminate. For women, <laughs> things look slightly different. So for women, um, for women you have 65% uh, for the straight women, 65% orgasm most times or all times, okay? 66 for bisexuals, right? 1% gap, and then, <laughs> There's a 24% climb, right? So lesbians are at 89%. 89. Yeah. Give yourself a round of applause, lesbians. Like, good job. <laughs> That's impressive. Um, and it's the same as the gay man. It's beautiful. There's like perfect symmetry, right? <laughs> it's one of my favorite facts. Um, yeah, so lesbians are just at home, like having very orgasmic sex. They don't need to leave the house. That's fine. Why would you? Just don't stop. All right. So don't reject stereotypes out of hand. Like sometimes they've got this truth in them. Um, gays, right. So we're at the, the, the two like most, most widely known ones are right at the start and then we get into other territories. So like gays, right. So gays are like the opposite of lesbians. Like, 
a bit of a Beyonce song in this respect. That's like, who runs the scene? Gays. <laughs> who runs the motherfucking scene? It's definitely gays, right? So like everything's kind of for them. They've got their own bars, their own saunas. Not their own bars, sure. Anyone can go into the bar, but like the sex clubs, the saunas, you're just not allowed in if you're not, um, if you're not a man. Um, so like you kind of have to end up, you end up knowing a lot more about gay men than maybe they would know about you. And you kind of can't escape it because any venue you go to, you're sort of like the minority group within the minority group. It's mostly gay dudes um, in so many cases. So like you come to this pretty, pretty strong understanding, I would say. And the main thing with stereotypes is that like the heterosexual stereotypes are like exactly wrong, at least when it comes to the scene, right? Because we all know the heterosexual stereotypes are gay men are like feminine. They're flaming, you know, expressive, flamboyant. They're fashionable. They're like theatrical, you know, they're more likely to be seen like at an opera than like going for a jog. That's like the associations which the heterosexual world has. <laughs> now, if you see any actual adverts for gay events, <laughs> it's a little bit unclear whether this is like a disco or an anabolic steroid convention, like <laughs> heavy duty muscular physiques. Naked, ripped torsos. That's like, that's the gay aesthetic. And it's just an aesthetic. Like, obviously, not all gay men actually look like this. But this is the ideal. This is like, if you show up to one of these parties and you get topless and you're ripped, you know, that's quite a good position. If you show up, you know, there's other ways. <laughs> yeah, the ideals don't really match up with the reality of gay male physique. And I think it's very sad. And it gets even more sad on, like, Grinder or Scruff or Hornet. You know, obviously as a queer woman, I use a lot of gay apps, like gay hookup apps, that's just part of my life. Stands to reason, like, <laughs> you're not gonna find the Twinkie bisexuals like out in a gay bar, right? That's not where they go to. Um, but they also don't go to like Grinder and Hornet. You just can't, you can't find like, everyone on there is not only like muscular, like heavy duty muscular physiques, or at least Photoshop would have it suggest. They even like specify, they're like no fats and no femmes. And a few of them go further. They also get racist. They're like, no femmes, no fats, no black people, nobody interesting. I just want muscles. Like that's that's this whole <laughs> this whole mask for mask thing, which <laughs> not only do I find hostile, I also find it kind of quite interesting. It's like this is straight acting. This is the term they use a lot. It's like straight acting. It's like how straight acting can you be if you're a man inserting the genitals of other men into your mouth? Like that's kind of like it's not. Well, it is straight male behavior, but anyway. Uh, but yeah, it's, but it's ridiculous. Like, it's, it's just the case that, that when you're, like, yeah, when you encounter these, these gay men, and you can tell the heterosexuals on this app, they're very visible because they'll be wearing, like, heavy puffer jackets. They'll be like, like, you know, if they're muscular, they'll have skipped leg day. So there'll be a slight capsizing risk. You know, you can find the heterosexuals, like, at a glance. There's no mistaking them, and they're much less impressive. So. Like, ultimately, ultimately, I've got to say, like, like, you know, gay men are doing pretty well, but maybe, like, a bit more time at opera, a bit less time at the gym. Like, come on, live up to that heterosexual stereotype. You never know. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. Oh, no, this is the difficult one. LG, yeah, right, bisexuals, bisexuals. And this is where I get, like, greedy. This is where I get really confused like confused over all of my different options. <laughs> so indecisive, that's me, you know? I even like get to the stage where I'm like, am I even a queer comedian at all? Maybe I'm just doing it for like straight attention, you know? <laughs> Maybe that's what's going on here. Yeah. 
now, but for real, bisexual stereotypes are like endless and they all center around this idea that like people don't really want bisexuals to exist. It's just kind of awkward. <laughs> they just don't get it. Like a lot of people are like, eh, well, you know, <laughs> gay people and straight people, that's one thing, but like mixing it together, I don't, I'm not into it. Like they, they, they really don't like it. And this is, this is what a lot of it comes down to. And it gets especially bad. I've got to say, especially bad are the lesbians and the straight women. Yeah, funny. And, and obviously when I say the lesbians are pretty bad, I mean they're not as bad as straight men. Like, they're not one of the leading causes of death for women like straight men are for bisexuals. But that's just men. They just kill everyone. It's nothing particular about bisexual women just selling them off, right? But... <laughs> Great one to applaud on, right? <laughs> no, but, right? But within the stereotyping game, lesbians are the worst. They're just like, right, I can't date a bisexual woman. I've heard this a thousand times. I can't date a bisexual woman. We'll get together, I'll get attached, and then she's gonna leave me for a man. Yeah, she's gonna leave me, she's gonna be with a dude, and then I'll be extra heartbroken. I'll be like doubly heartbroken, because I'm heartbroken and also I'm not enough as a lady, right? That's the lesbian biphobia. And it's bizarre. Like, don't you know about the orgasm gap? <laughs> Like, don't tell on yourself. <laughs> like, what a thing to be insecure about. Like, bisexuals are the experts in the orgasm gap. You know, bisexual women, we know all about that. I have a suspicion, right, why is it only 1% higher? Why are straight women on 65 and bisexuals are on 66? You'd think we'd be a bit more in between, but I think it's just that, like, we know what we're missing, so we enjoy sex with men a lot less. Like, <laughs> we can't pretend this is the best thing that is possible, because we know. So, right. And then you get to like, okay, right. So biphobia stage two. Um, yeah, straight, straight women and bisexual men, this is just baffling to me. Because there's a dose of like your homophobia, some just think it's disgusting, I don't like the thought of someone having sex with a man and then having sex with me, standard issue homophobia. And then it's like, then there's the biphobia as well. They're like, well maybe he's attracted to men so he's not really attracted to, 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 to like me, to women. And this is so common, like people just think, you, you can't be a bisexual guy, you can only be, like you're really gay, like deep down on the inside. <laughs> That's what they think. And it's just like, well maybe like, maybe he wants a sexual partner who's gonna leave the gym once a month, you know? Like maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe you're doing things that another man can't. And <laughs> this, is, this is like, this is a thing. And also like mostly, the main victim of that form of biphobia, let's be honest, is straight women. Like, you're passing up partners you know how to rim, or like fist you, like really, that is your loss. And if we're gonna close this orgasm gap, if we're gonna like get that, that gap down <laughs> to maybe 12%, I don't know. I think educating straight men is not the most efficient way. It's probably like <laughs> encouraging sex between straight men and bisexual men. I don't, no, sorry, wait, <laughs> straight women. <laughs> we can encourage that too. Encouraging sex between straight women and like, the experts, right? That's, that's how we're, go we're gonna resolve it. Anyway, so that's all the bisexual material. Um, really, I could talk all night about bisexuals, but I guess we should move on to trans people who no one really has any stereotypes about, I'm sure. Like, everyone loves trans people, right? <laughs> Nervous laughter again. <laughs> everyone loves trans people, no one would say a nasty thing. No, the main issue with trans people is like, the stereotype is like, stereotypes. Stereotypes is the, the trans stereotype. People think like, Trans people's gender identities are just a medley of kind of stuff they've 
mashed together from like watching TV and watching their sisters or something. Because no like cisgender person would ever do that, right? <laughs> no, no. So, um, so this is the, this is the like this is a thing, and it creates this interesting double bind where you can't go too like too far into your like target gender, whatever that might be. You can't be a woman who's too feminine or a man who's too masculine. Or people are like, oh, you're you're trying too hard. But you also like if you make no effort, if you're just literally doing nothing, then people are like, well, you're not even trying. Like, give me something to work with. <laughs> and so this is why, like, yeah, this is, this is why you've got kind of, like, most people will only kind of leave the house, most trans people will only leave the house when they've got, like, their A game on. They need to do, like, an extra managing effort to, like, work out and navigate the sweet spot between those two different kind of, two kind of poles. So, like... So yeah, that's the issue. And if like you know a trans person, what this means is that you can kind of tell, you can tell you're actually friends with them when you see them when they're a bit of a mess. Like, a bit of a mess and also like, like yeah, if you see a trans woman with like messy hair, no makeup, she invites you to a powerlifting championship, like you can, you can tell that you're actually like close to her. And like, yeah, and with trans men, it's yeah, if, if, if like, he suggests you're gonna come around and he's gonna bake cookies and he's gonna wear like a floral apron when you get there, that's again, like a strong hint. So like, <laughs> so this is the upside of stereotypes, but it's quite limited. Anyway, so like, I guess we're at the end of LGBT, which is like the ones everyone is sort of vaguely familiar with. And now we move into like the weird zone. Some people even just say LGBT plus, you know? <laughs> plus is just gonna cover all those real weirdos and we're gonna, <laughs> We're not even gonna specify, all right. Yeah, I don't like plus, but, um, but Q, Q is like for, a, yeah, like Q is controversial. That's the Q. Like Q is so controversial because some people, some people call themselves queers all day long and some people really don't like it. Some people have this real aversion to it, you know? It's like vibrators, like they're very divisive issues that just, <laughs> people, People aren't sure about it. And I kind of like queer kind of how it is, where it's like, can a straight person use the word queer? Well, kind of, but they feel really awkward and they like shuffle. I mean, my day job is a queer theorist, so I know this one. Like, <laughs> they just, they get very like, you know, looking down at the table. Like, it's kind of adorable. So like, I think queer is currently where it kind of needs to be. We need to keep queer like, as it's doing. Um, <laughs> Wow, if you thought that one was great, I'm gonna move into intersex material now. <laughs> All right, so intersex stuff is the hardest thing to tell a joke about. I've been out as an intersex person since 2016. I've never done a set about it because it's like comedy requires some kind of degree of familiarity, right? You need to have some kind of moment of recognition and to like get it. But with intersex people, like the level of cluelessness is quite advanced, even among other queers, <laughs> for real. Like, you, you never ask someone if they're intersex, because they might just be like, yeah, yeah, I'm intersex, it's great. <laughs> I'm not one of those asexuals, I'm just an ally, right? <laughs> um, but like, you know, that's, that's, that's the reality of it. And like, it's, it's difficult. It takes like some explanation. And the simplest way I can put it is like, Intersex is sort of this medical term that ended up a movement, kind of accidentally. Because doctors would use this term, <laughs> doctors would use this term intersex to like describe someone born with ambiguous sexual traits, and then they kind of didn't like it, because people were using this term and they were like, well maybe you shouldn't perform surgeries on us, give us hormones without our consent, and so on. 
And doctors were like, that's okay, we'll rebrand it. We'll say that you're not intersex, you have a disorder of sex development, right? DSD, you've got a disorder of sex development. And this kind of makes me wonder how orderly these doctors' genitals really were. Like, <laughs> like how, how tidy are we talking? Like some, <laughs> some manscaping going on there, like everything, everything all in order. But yeah, but so like, but with intersex stuff, right? And there's this, this kind of very harsh curve between people knowing nothing and people going, oh, that's horrible. So like, you definitely don't want to like tell jokes about it or like use, use material, right? But, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the issue with it. And also we don't really have like an established culture. We definitely don't have venues. There are no kind of like intersex venues, like the way there's a gay bar. You can't just like be like, okay, I'm gonna go hang out with some intersex people tonight. That's not really an option. We don't really have bars. We just have conferences. And <laughs> and that's an improvement. We got to use the Rathaus two times. That was very fancy. Like. <laughs> Yeah, so that's an improvement, but but it's still kind of getting there. And like the one the one time I had a conversation with another activist about this, uh, another intersex activist about this issue, and uh, what they said to me was like, you know, the distinctive thing about intersex culture is we all seem to wear black. So <laughs> so I guess I'm flying the flag for you tonight. <laughs> I mean, that room just a goth, right? Okay, so that, that brings us to the end of LGBTQI. I don't know if the asexuals and allies have decided at this point. Any consensus? No, okay. A is not agreement tonight. We don't have that solved. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, I just want to wrap up by, uh, by saying it's lovely to be performing back in Vienna once again. And... <laughs> Yeah, and like these things are horrible, stereotypes are horrible, but really just like what's most important is you don't want to let the bastards win, you know? You can't, let, you can't let a nasty stereotype get in the way of like a fun night out if that's what you want to do. Or if you're a lesbian, probably a loud night in. Like that. <laughs> no, we would like, we would love to, to know more about, um, yeah, these uh, different ways of producing writing um for different purposes no we talk about this for for, for uh journalism or for uh theory or for comedy or these esoteric uh, uh writings that you mentioned yeah. while we're talking about um feminism so yeah if you can tell us about this yeah uh well i do writing for a pretty broad range of purposes, it's safe to say, range from uh, movement, kind of political, <laughs> yeah, like strategic or schematic kind of writing, like we were just talking about family abolition and stuff like that, um, through to like, I've done some journalism, I've written pieces for Vice and for The Guardian most recently and most controversially, uh, which are just trying to expose a complex issue which I know quite deeply to a much broader audience um, to make it so that, you know, the kind of person who checks out <laughs> vice.com or uh, The Guardian can, like, uh, try and understand something like intersex liberation or uh, gender foundationalism <laughs> or 
you know, a difficult topic uh, and trying to make it like an easy stuff. Um, I also write comedy. I do stand-up performances. That's kind of my involvement in comedy. And um, and yeah, I write personal stuff. I write stuff for social media. I write uh, private esoteric pieces. Um, yeah, I, I write things which are just only for me or only for me and uh, a specific audience or deity. And uh, and I, I guess I have a lot of a lot of things that I do. So that is um, yeah, that's that's something which um, which does interest me a lot. The way that you um, yeah, shift between different registers. So. So yeah, that that uh, <laughs> that's um, yeah, that's that's something which I guess I've always always kind of been doing. Um, yeah. Well, I'm I'm curious about about you two, right? Like you say you're working on a totality book, but do I understand it right that you're also like um, you're also like are you also doing like performances or or like music stuff as well, right? Yeah, exactly. We're both uh, working with noise or sound or conceptually performances so yeah I guess that's how we met uh, mm-hmm. and then we both developed an interest in philosophy um, yeah I became very good friends with Ray and then Miguel studied with Ian Hamilton Grant so we have this both I don't know if at times it's schizophrenic or or not or we try to combine them I don't know what do you think Miguel what like how do you feel about these two practices uh, yeah, I mean, as a matter of fact, we are um, with other friends producing this little research group on noise in which we mix, yeah, theory and practice. Well, uh, we could say that Machin and I, we have been doing noise as such as noise music uh, for, for a long time, but as well, there is this increasing increased interest in, in noise as a concept. So we found ways of um, mixing the conceptual potential of certain notions such as improv- improvisation that I guess you as well find this in stand-up comedy, no? Or, or noise or this, yeah, disruption cool. or, or, or idea of alienation. Uh, in Martin's case, that it's um, yeah, it's evident both uh, in music practice and in theory or politics. Yeah. So yeah. This so you also are kind of blending <laughs> blending styles and walking across. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, g- I'll give you I'll give you an example that, that I must say that you know as a you know I. Have if they ask me, you know, I say I'm an artist, and I get a shit or suspicion from both the politicians, like people interested in politics or, you know, people interested in uh, philosophy. It's like they they kind of look at you a bit suspicious or like they look down a, a bit on, on you, you know, or I'll give you an example, like with some friends we were doing like a performative reading group uh, in which we would choose a text uh, write some notes and out of these notes we will make a score that then we will perform and we invited uh, end notes like uh, John and Marina from end notes to read together yeah. with them the logic of gender and it was very funny because uh, then we ended up producing a score that it was uh, behave like a pig until you mm-hmm. are paid 
not to. So for five minutes we were just like basically oinking on the grounds, well, laughing hysterically, you know. But but I think you know like they they were you know you know them when they saw us again, you know they saw us at another event. And it's like oh here are the artists, you know. So it's it's I don't know I don't know if you have like this because you also work in such a important <laughs> you know that. Uh, do you see it as a kind of positive or do you sometimes get like uh, some shit from you know so by being so polyvalent and so yeah. you, know. you know this topic has been on my mind for two reasons recently well one is that I'm preparing this talk for Graz which was uh, Graz is a small <laughs> a small communist hell city here in Austria and um I was supposed to be going out there and giving a talk, not to the Communist Party, but to uh, a comrade, uh, an academic event set up by a comrade. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, during this event, the, the loose theme which the funding was secured on was this topic of noise. So I found myself getting in touch with uh, three of the contributors to the collection who... Um, they either write about music in the chapter for transgender Marxism, or they just have kind of uh, separate or separate or overlapping careers as musicians. So um, uh, one is a noise artist, uh, Yibala. Um, another one arranges uh, raves or renegades, as they're known, in the Bay Area. And then um, a third is uh, Jan Hode, who organizes this event, Queer Boots. Um, which is talked about in her chapter Encounters in Lancaster and um, so I've got in touch with all three of them to kind of talk about um, well I suppose I'm just curious about I was curious about what overlaps there are or aren't in terms of like uh, each of their political writings and their like musical careers and I got um, quite a few illuminating responses I got some very interesting answers which I was hoping to share with uh, with uh, this audience in Graz, and maybe I'll still do it online, so I don't know, maybe people can tune in, I'm not sure. But um, but I guess the reason I found it interesting is because, um, uh, well, again, <laughs> similar to xenofeminism, uh, like, clearly noise, experimental, uh, weird electronica shit, um, uh, and also, well, rave is another story, but, like, these are genres which, like, both have kind of associations with kind of, like, edgy right-wing politics uh, and um, uh, industrial music especially, uh, and simultaneously have this and also this com compelling, like, attraction uh, for any kind of, like, gender deviant, and um, I've just always had loads of trans people um, participating in them and making them, often as quite central figures. Uh, in music history, so um, so yeah, so I was very curious about what um, what overlaps, if any, were kind of existing there, and that's something which um, uh, yeah, it it's always sort of fascinated me, and it's always been saying that in my own life, like um, in my own life, it's been there. I can remember as like a socially isolated teenager, I watched this video of uh, Discipline, the original <laughs> Throbbing Gristle Discipline, the live performance. I would watch this track like over and over again. <laughs> and the, especially the matching convulsions of um, Genesis Parish and the audience members 
uh, as they're both just kind of writhing around <laughs> with the aid of heavy amplification and probably several psychedelics. Uh, yeah, and this was like after this performance was like what early 70s or mid 70s. So this was like a kind of you can imagine an experience which people had actually. <laughs> Yeah, you were talking about watching Discipline from Throbbing Grizzle and uh, hopefully it was such a, I don't know, I was oh. really enjoying to see, you know, like that this moment that it was important I guess for I you. Said, I, I guess it was exactly the, yeah, it was like this, this is footage from like, what, what year is it? I don't know, the mid-70s or something? So you can imagine that no one had really experienced that before, you know? <laughs> There had been intense mystical experiences, but never, never quite that one. And uh, and yeah, obviously the the sense of transformation kind of kind of appeal appealed to me, like as a youth, and uh, it still does. <laughs> you know, there's still uh, there's still that distinctive that distinctive power in industrial records, that um, that way of like evocation that that only that genre kind of fully managed in the way that it does. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think you're right, and I think you, like the way that you were pointing out at the problems or, or contradictions or the way that, I mean, I encounter so many people who, you know, I come also from that scene of noise and, you know, you encounter so many people that you think they're dodgy and because perhaps there was this kind of postmodernist kind of uh, approach, you thought like, okay, um, this is just like being playful. And maybe there is some people who are very consciously playful. I'm thinking of Leibach, but others that, you know, they, you know, like them when in the last decade, the whole alt-right happened, you know, it's like people just can't take it for granted without any form of irony. And it's like totally identified with that and use it as material. And I think this is something that happened in the last decade, which I don't know. Yeah, it's a very strong phenomenon. But I guess now, particularly people that they are now producing this sort of music with this sort of aesthetics and and so I find this problematic because the whole thing that uh, we are experiencing with the old ride uh, doing this sort of appropriation of justice warrior uh, terminology um, all these uh, polemics that we are having uh, and all their triumph on social media and on the internet is because precisely they were very very familiar on how to produce a subculture out of the Uh, capital that uh, reaction or producing something radical uh, suddenly reinforces uh, something that was hegemonic let's say fascism <laughs> and you can rebrand it under a sort of edgy or transgressive uh, label and I find extremely naive this And it's actually kind of sad, no? Because um, it's like appealing, to, uh, the appealing to a very old totem, trying to recover this old magic that, if it was there, is not there anymore. If, 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 for example, in the late 70s, this video clip 
of discipline was emancipatory and was incredibly influential for for many people that's something that that's for sure but the reenactment of those attitudes i don't think they they give us any special yeah power right today you know, you know what i mean right uh yeah no i totally agree i um i also uh i think what i find interesting about music is that both demands um it demands <laughs> it demands for people making it to write about it to provide an account for it in a way right like there's always liner notes um if you're organizing an underground party you have to advertise it in some way mm. so it kind of like it sort of uh there's an obligation to give it some kind of discursive framing <laughs> if we can use that word. uh like that's kind of an obligation but also it's it's very difficult to capture it um kind of by design it's very difficult to like um it's very difficult to describe what is actually going on sonically like in a harsh noise track a lot of the time because uh so many of your standard um musicological reference points have been deliberately obscured or uh <laughs> overloaded um and it's difficult to describe what happens at a rave or even at a sweaty uh queer pop party where they play Beyonce it's difficult to kind of convey that um in a thoroughgoing text because um these are immersive from yeah kind of processes which threaten to swallow you so um so it can it can be done it's just it's interesting how difficult <laughs> how difficult a lot of the people I was talking to and how difficult I found it to really um capture it and uh even in the account I gave just now I gave you a very developmental account and like oh yeah well I was a teenager and then I encountered this powerful thing and it transformed me forever you know what I mean that's like I I tried to contextualize it I suppose but um but actually like actually capturing what's going on with these uh practices and with these scenes and with these performances it's really tricky and that's what makes it fun <laughs> like, yeah. that's why you should bother absolutely have you written uh, about music hmm? uh, have you written about music have you also done like my most or... recent my most recent piece about this was the hypocrite reader i talk about um shoegaze i talk about shoegaze and hyper objects <laughs> because uh specifically my bloody valentine appear in in this um uh timothy morton's book about hyper objects uh that uh yeah their engagement with it kind of draws on my bloody valentine and i have a very different opinion about that band it seems <laughs> to morton so Please, could, that's you like one could you share that with us because we are not we we didn't yeah, read this of course So so basically um <laughs> so basically Morton's whole deal is uh I'll send you the link. Um uh one second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I'm just going to do it before I talk so you don't have clicking in your background. Okay. Yeah, okay, I'll send you the Uh so yeah, Hypocrite Reader got this um uh got Ben Carter Olcott to talk about uh 
talk about this, this book by uh, Morton, um, on hyper objects, and I guess like, uh, the way that they appear in this book, the way that My Bloody Valentine appear in this book is there's some, uh, yeah, this kind of like, overwhelming, uh, <laughs> like, overwhelming, like, uh, overbearingly, like, sensuous, kind of dominating, uh, experience, which is, of course, how the band kind of calculated, that's their established persona, right, um, this kind of depersonalization, uh, which I think is a very mighty thing, but it's also, like, in a way, <laughs> like, it, it, it's in a way the worst way to understand what the band were doing and where they're situated in music history, right? So, um, so I, I have an attempt in this, um, in this piece to kind of like do them justice from like another dimension while simultaneously, um, not denying this kind of, um, this, uh, yeah, this sense of like overload and, um, oblivion, <laughs> which they, especially in their live performances, um, have truly kind of perfected. Uh, yeah, I'd say, like, um, from the bands I've seen, definitely, like, My Bloody Valentine and Swans are probably, yeah, the two ones that really kind of, like, mastered that, that, uh, yeah, that kind of, like, overbearing delivery of noise. So, um, so, like, I was trying to, uh, I was trying to, um, yeah, I was trying to say that Morton's got a point, but also, like, political economy is still there, even if you have... Um, well, no, it's like political economy is not in opposition to your powerful and swamped um, feelings. And in fact, like, um, Marxism is exactly about the sensuous, right? <laughs> it's exactly about, um, it's exactly about how these abstractions are like, uh, at an interplay of the sensual and the super sensual. Um, so that's like, that's, that's what I've got to say about shoegaze. <laughs> and this is, a, this is another genre which I've loved since I was a, a teenager, you know, predictably like a little white Londoner, uh, <laughs> intelligentsia. Um, yeah, so that's, um, that's kind of what I got to say about that one. But yeah, I love this material. This is all, this is all great. This is all my stuff, but it's also like, sometimes when you really love something, you've got to keep your, you know, keep the several registers, keep on thinking about it as a commodity, right? And you mentioned the swans regarding this life acts that are very powerful and so Pardon? Uh, regarding these life acts that are very powerful uh, and I wonder I, I guess you okay. saw the swans live like no, no. probably all of oh, us yeah. like in this last 20 years not back in the yeah I saw them day. in Dresden so I wonder because I I don't know what to what to think about this. I, I find it uh, somehow problematic the, the the way in which they present uh, the music. Obviously, it's really loud, and this mm -hmm. presents a challenge to the reception of the music. But I guess all of us uh, we watch as well very 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 loud acts. But in terms of performance. Yeah, the music performance that we see uh, beyond the the sonic expression, uh, I find it quite rudimentary and mm. sort of rock and roll, classic rock and roll male uh, progression. And yeah, 
I don't know. I, I am curious about your your thoughts on this because yeah. for me it's like really rudimentary rock and roll played extremely loud. But what mm. my eyes see on a stage, yeah, is not very different from yeah, like a fifties rock and roll band. Right. Well, that's true, and and that's part of why. I don't think I could see them live again. I didn't know. So when I saw them in Dresden, I didn't know about uh, the rape. I didn't know about the cover-up. And for me, <laughs> I I feel like I couldn't I couldn't go and see a performance of theirs again. I definitely couldn't pay for it uh, because exactly that persona you mentioned, um, that was such a big part of the act. You know what I mean? It's like with yeah. Woody Allen. You can't pretend that... Uh, You can't pretend you're watching a Woody Allen film and you can't tell that this is a man who wants to fuck teenagers. Like, that's the entire content of the film. Yeah. So I have a similar sense with Swans about their persona. Um, but as an experience, it's a very bifurcated one because now post hoc, I have to disavow them and distance myself or I feel the need to. Um, uh, but at the time, I think that what impressed me the most about it was the... Uh, How slow it was, I suppose. They had this aspect of um, uh, each kind of like musical <laughs> notion was just held for such a long amount of time, which was, yeah, totally to do with this, you know, rugged confidence, this kind of machismo. But um, what it produced is these um, single repeating motifs that you could just feel um, passing through you. And this is something which you know, any, <laughs> any, anyone fucking around with a sound system will achieve. But um, the kind of way that they held that feeling and sort of like sustained it across time, uh, I found quite transformative. And I even like befriended someone <laughs> at that conference for, uh, not conference, at that concert for a time who I didn't have a lot in common with, kind of just on the basis of us having had this shared experience together. We stayed in touch for, I think, some two years or something afterwards. Um, without even talking about the event, you know what I mean? We, I don't think we mentioned swans once in our friendship. And um, yeah, it had, this, uh, it had this real hold on me. But as I say now, post-talk, I can, as you say, this uh, 50s uh, rock band, Machismo stuff, that is um, impossible to miss, right? They've made it, uh, yeah, they've made it so that now I, I, I don't know, I, I can only... I can only encounter that in like a uh, double register, which is sad. Yeah, it's sad that so men are racists. So I really, I really regret that as an ethnographic fact. Uh, and women too, for that matter. I think, but I, for me, what has been, um, I don't know if interesting or disappointing or revealing, and it, it relates, I guess, back to the issue about the industrial, you know, noise music scene, you know, but in the 80s, you know, it's like, Yeah, you had this Thatcher Reagan era in which neoliberalism mm. was kicking in, and then you had these uh, subcultures or these, you know, music forms that were supposed to kind of give you an outlet to that oppressive atmosphere. But the kind of ideology that they uh, promoted, or the kind of uh, this inner, you know, in the case of Suges, as you were saying, you know, like the inner, rich, you know. It's like retrieving into your own, you know, whatever your own might be, or in the case of swans, going to some kind of primitive 
you know, just for the power of immediacy, just trying to get the, the strongest kind of reaction. You know, mm. now in the hindsight, you know, like, you know, years later, seeing the consequences of what has happened, you see them right. as part of the same kind of, uh, as a result of that kind of ideology, rather than as a kind of counter, you know, uh, critical right. or like kind of alternative, you know, and it's a, I, I guess that's the sad uh, thing about it, of thinking like, oh, all those people that you thought they were references and they were giving you, I guess at that time, you know, they were giving you outlets and, you know, like, you know, they, they would allow you to express the frustration, but then mm -hmm. in the inside you see them as kind of part of the same kind of ideological uh, zeitgeist. Right. But as well, if you think about it, it makes sense. In the early 80s in New York, I understand how Michael Gira or Jarboe could produce this yeah. very bleak reflection. Or in Manchester uh, <laughs> in the late 70s. <laughs> But the, the problem is for me, I mean, I saw throwing this or maybe 2006 or seven, and it was awful. For me, it was awful yeah. in the auditorium yeah. Barcelona uh, for uh, Primavera Sound. It was like, this makes zero sense. It's like, it's, it's pure nonsense. And it's, it's right. something that is really disturbing because you could see examples of maybe even the same artists because Coil, I think they produce very interesting stuff until very, very late, mm -hmm. no? but it's like the reproduction of some sort of mental state that I assume it made a lot of sense back then. Yeah. Uh, the aesthetic reproduction now is mm -hmm. somehow uh, quite weak in terms of this analysis that music in a moment in time can produce something very, very accurate because it's playful with yeah. our notions of tribalism, subculture, and mm -hmm. identity, etc. But the, yeah, the, the, the reproduction of certain aesthetics, I don't know, it's, it's, as Martin said, it's, it's very, very tricky. Well, maybe let me put it this way. <laughs> the issue is that, uh, as you say, like, uh, it's exactly the repurposing or the <coughs> reworking of these very bleak contexts, you know, post-industrial, Manchester in the late 20th century, like 1980s New York, <laughs> in the face of Reagan. Um, those kind of broader contexts are also reflected in what was going on and what is still going on um, in terms of like uh, location of venues, venues in abandoned warehouses, um, things like that. Well, this is one of the things which is in my uh, email I just received this morning from DJ Cavera, where uh, she's describing how... Uh, once you become a raver it's very much it's, it's very much a matter of perspective or even consciousness about the way you move into a space and you move into a space which looks all fucked up and concrete and you're like okay well we're going to bring in some thermos flasks and some uh you know there's no heating but we can just bring in some blankets and you know so you're constantly like you're finding thing which looks like trash and then you're reusing it which is of course what coil um and other like other industrial acts of that um era were kind of like like uh introducing right like there's this reintroduction of kind of like bits of like trashy samples and mm. 
whatever they could find or just just like sometimes like high art pop like Kate Bush or whatever and just yeah, integrating yeah. this this stuff and reworking it but the issue with reproduction is that obviously once you've kind of um done that <laughs> once you've like turned something which was uh, a trash pile into a beautiful night out then um there's one aspect you kind of you almost have to move on you know what I mean like you can't once you've made something beautiful and wonderful uh you kind of need more trash right you can't just keep on going back to that transformative moment in exactly the same place um but uh oh yeah well that was one of the things so so um yeah she was describing how they just go deeper and deeper into the woods um <laughs> and uh and uh you know deep enough into the woods that the police are not gonna like uh come out unless there's a noise complaint and this is like um uh well, in a way, this is the same the same thing as like taking over like uh, an abandoned warehouse in Manchester or uh, the well, it was the thing. It wasn't just Manchester; it was all across the north of England, right? Like every every single like uh, quote unquote shithole town would have like its own uh, sound system and its own own regular night um, during the peak of rays, and that's exactly what was going on. This kind of like repurposing of bleak, like out of the way. Um, marginalized on every level kind of places and and reworking them um but uh but yeah that's that's kind of what what is um really the most beautiful thing about these trends and these trajectories but also it, it sort of suggests to me at least like um yeah you shouldn't just be like showing up at uh the same place time and time again or or taking the same act over the decades like into bigger and bigger concert halls that feels like um really like defeating the point right it's like it's about um yeah it's about exactly like seizing hold of like to like the horrible and the abandoned and all of that and and really dissolve yeah do you know this band from states uh, that kids uh, seem to be super into it 100 gex what was that sorry which band 100 gex do you know oh, this band i don't think so but it was it's really like people are going well they're going crazy i just read uh young people today yeah i just read uh, uh, a tweet today saying like oh so much has happened since the first album came out a year ago or two years ago, <laughs> yeah. a year and a half ago that right. the new the new the new track the new work it just sounds conventional so i guess uh -huh. you know like the time things it's just like how fast yeah. You know, things are happening now. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I well, recommend you. They, they are playing uh, Europe, uh, I guess, at the beginning of 2022. Uh, and I was really looking forward to see them. But the whole pandemic thing occurred. And, but they really captured this, this set guys of very limited attention spam, uh, kids cons kids consuming media through mediated technologies such as TikTok, etc. And it's really schizo music. Uh, yeah, proper uh, result of, of this moment. Um, energy drinks and Minecraft. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. And of the Sugays, um, do you know A.R. Kane? I just discovered them recently, and they they're blowing. Yeah, they blew my mind. Uh huh. Yeah, that's quite quite impressive, right? Yeah, I love. Yeah, it just blew me. Yeah, so yeah, that that was like a 
yeah. Last year, mm -hmm. it just kind of, I got such a kick out of them. Yeah. And lately, what, what are you listening to lately? Oh, well, lately I've been listening to um, mostly to, to free jazz and techno, I guess. I was I was in a real deep hyperpop phase for a while now. <laughs> I guess especially um, yeah, I suppose especially after the past, past six months. But yeah, I became kind of like a Charlie XCX obsessive until it began to annoy my girlfriend and then <laughs> and I I guess that's I don't know, that's still I, I suppose that's still saying I listen to sometimes. But yeah, I just um yeah, I guess like uh yeah i guess like jazz and techno that's, that's mostly it so do you feel but, uh, that I'll the pc music milieu uh, is appealing for you or um <laughs> i i i love that stuff really <laughs> i mean i enjoyed it a lot uh, but uh well <laughs> it's hard to say i mean it's often well often with the stuff there's a kind of disposability to it right like Uh, it's kind of not not meant to be music that you listen to year in year out, uh, and that's something I think about a bit. Like um, like it's remarkable how if you listen to like a Madonna hit single, it's somehow, for me at least, it has this enjoyable quality, whether it's like five years old or ten years yeah. old or something. And um, there's not very much pop music that's truer, right? And um, yeah, so I feel like a lot of this stuff is kind of like intensely enjoyable for me for like several months, and then I just have to. Move on from that. Yeah, but I guess the temp hmm, yeah, not the temporality of the way in which uh, they approach production has to do with an idea. Uh, songwriting is completely different. But all these guys did a remix album of the album of 100 gigs. So you have A.G. Cook, Charlie, many other people did like remixes of these tracks so it's um yeah it's a different way of thinking about yeah a pop song but let's write a pop song that endures uh, the progression of, of of time and so and it makes you feel or at least for me um quite volatile because it's uh, something that uh, the lifespan is uh, yeah it's somehow cruel because for producers I guess they can feel if, if you are a young person and you want to do something like that you feel the time pressure that or you do it now and you succeed now or you won't make it there is no feeling of like in the past that suddenly today we have a blog and in this blog someone does a rip of a cassette tape of a home uh, producer of industrial music but this seems to be uh, if you are producing today i don't know drill or this hyper pop thing etc Uh, unless you are able to produce an audience now, 
this is going to disappear in the endless fragmentation of, uh, of the present. And it's For sure. quite, like quite cruel, you know, because it's like this thing that you can see on Twitch and on YouTube and any other content creator that it's like you need to capture your audience now otherwise this train is gonna <laughs> is gonna disappear you are mm -hmm. not producing a physical object that could capture the attention of someone in 20 years yeah for sure for sure and i think this moment you're saying like about uh you said this right like picturing it like in 10 years time <laughs> like Because I feel like a lot of this music is purposely made that you listen to it for six months and then you get bored with it. And then you can picture yourself like in 10 years time, at least with, um, fuck it, what's this band even called? The Stupid Horse Band. You know the ones I mean. Um, <laughs> like, oh, uh, 100 Gex. Like, oh, with yeah. 100 Gex, you can tell, <laughs> you can tell that it's like, uh, 2032 or whatever it is. Yeah. Assuming the ecosphere survived that long. Uh, you can just tell that, that there's gonna be it's gonna be powerful again, and um, and that's clearly what they're trying to do, right? Because the nostalgia is already baked into it. Um, and I'm curious about whether the same thing is going to be true for you know this 1992 obsessed like house music. You know this house music. I've even encountered albums that are like pretending they're from the <laughs> like pretending they're from the mid 90s and actually from like two or three years ago stuff like that um a lot of this stuff seems to wash up on spotify i've noticed but um but i'm curious about whether anyone's gonna connect with that stuff in the same way my guess is that it's not but um but somehow i think with like a lot of this like hyper pop 100 gex stuff it's like it's been kind of engineered that uh it's like already nostalgic and it's gonna like lead through into more nostalgia right um whether that's a good thing i don't know uh <laughs> they wouldn't say that this is like my favorite kind of stuff but i find it um i find it interesting and i especially find it a lot more interesting than indie you know which oh, yeah. is sort of what it's the overcorrection for it's like the anti-indie i think sophie um in her early career and she was asked what genre her music was and she said advertising and this is like in a way i admire this i admire this this is the like one facelift too many kind of approach the culture and i just i can't help but admire it even if it even if i don't belong to it i kind of love it from the outside you know and do yeah. you get a feeling the, with comedy that in a, some ways uh music uh i think i get the feeling that music can prefigure it's like kind of a it has a kind of unconscious sense for what's going on and uh, yeah. it's able to you know pick up things in a much more intuitive fast and uh sometimes perhaps accurate but not articulated that yeah. you know that is like uh, do you think that comedy does something similar let's talk about comedy <laughs> yeah please 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 go ahead we can talk about comedy comedy is something which i have uh not really discussed alongside my political theory before except in this review of andrea longchu's book um females which i found very interesting but not very impressive uh but comedy is a very um a very curious thing because i feel like my comedy career was sort of uniquely blessed like i had uh as much fortune as you could possibly hope for i basically began performing for festival audiences so i got into it through a friend of mine called jet who um has his own very long and impressive career with this 
Uh, and he basically just said, oh, you should come along to this workshop and sort of insisted in uh, <laughs> a way he's very good at doing. Um, and yeah, and then I got on stage with this group called uh, ACAB, who are organizing the event Activist Comedy Against Bullshit. And for a time, there were two rival troops of uh, comedians, queer comedians here in Vienna. Uh, there was ACAB and um, PCCC, Politically Correct Comedy Club. And I was performing for both of them. Uh, and Politically Correct Comedy Club performed at an audience called, uh, at a venue called Book. Um, which is one of the main kind of cultural centers here in Vienna. So like I've always performed for pretty large crowds. I've always performed primarily for the LGBT etc plus community. And um, that's kind of been my career. I guess it's uh, yeah, <laughs> it's been going on since 2018. And comedy I love and um, I get a lot out of exactly because it has this total <coughs> counterposed nature to intellectual life, right? So like when you're writing intellectual essays, you kind of have to uh, grind and put them all together and then you sort of release them into the world and you kind of don't know right like uh unless you're like an academic and you go to a symposium or something and everyone applauds you um you mostly just uh have to release these essays in into the world and hope for the best and um sit around in your chair and <laughs> you know six months or four years down the line or something someone emails you or invites you on their weird podcast, and then you're like, oh, people are actually having my thoughts, writhing around in their brains all this time. Um, who would have guessed? And often it's like material you wouldn't have expected or forgotten. So that's intellectual life. That's like being an essayist. That's, that's how that works. But comedy is literally like you show up on stage and you do your thing and you can tell instantaneously, like immediately, uh, whether you are succeeding as a comedian. Um, and you can fail as a comedian and go on stage and succeed as something else. You can still like have a huge impact on people, but uh, you can tell straight away if people are laughing, uh, if they're responding, and it's a wonderful thing. The best thing about it is the audiences very often respond um, respond in surprising ways. So you um, you set up a whole uh, set of punchlines, and then uh, they can't stop laughing at part of your setup. So <laughs> you have to like give them a minute and then continue. Um, and the punchline becomes like an afterthought. Or sometimes you like set everything up and then um, and they just uh, mishear a word or something, you know what I mean? And um, uh, Or you fluff a delivery. And it has this real, um, it has this real sense of rapidity and like speed and responsiveness that I just find wonderful because um, you sort of just, uh, you can't fake it, to be honest. Like, like um, there's a big difference between an audience kind of like applauding you because they agree with you and genuinely sincerely laughing and anyone who's been on stage um even once i think is able to tell what that difference is so um so yeah that's that's um i'm just i was just asking because i was interested in how you know maybe these moments then how do they influence your more academic thinking like whether you take from experiences that you get in com in comedy then suddenly they make you think differently about things that you're working uh, in more theoretical well, terms. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I guess in some cases I have explored similar. Um, <laughs> I've explored similar topics. I've even explored similar life material, like uh, my piece in Harmontown and um, my early com comedy sets were uh, pretty similar, which is to say they covered like the social horror of heterosexuality as I take into calling it and um yeah in a way they address the same um the same things but in very different registers 
uh, because, um, yeah, there are often like multiple things you can get out of the same experiences, right? And um, yeah, well, I guess a lot of the time um, they do form inform each other, but a lot of the time they also don't. And this is sort of my re reply to Andrea Longchi is that um, comedy doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't, well, it has an emancipatory character some of the time, but it's just as easy to like mislead an audience and to like baffle them or confuse them as it is to like illuminate or uh, <laughs> like as it is to illuminate or actually lead them through to a, a revolutionary conclusion. And um, I think a lot of the time the temptation to entertain just becomes too strong for people, right? And this is exactly why I'm sort of like very cautious about the sort of like merger of um, comedy and politics that happened with various like um, various very very successful podcasts and so on. Um, I think there needs to be a bit of differentiation exactly because like I um, I don't necessarily feel that uh, yeah I don't feel that <laughs> I feel like comedy can be sort of bent towards justice um, but like it takes quite a lot of doing and the reality is is like a lot of the time what it's achieving is actually something else. It's still something important but um, I don't think that it I think a lot of the time a lot of the time comedy provides like solace and uh and uh yeah <laughs> solace and like cause to avoid despair rather than like actually leading people through into kind of abolition and all of that stuff i would otherwise hope to lead them through to right um yeah